This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Mobile hunters, if you're interested in upping your mobile game, then head to tetherednation.com and check out their saddle gear. There are a few things that you can buy that will actually help you become a better deer hunter or give you the freedom to hunt any tree or any situation. This reason is why I started saddle hunting in the first place and why I use Tethered's gear. I can honestly say that Tethered saddle gear has changed how I hunt for the better. Big tree, little tree, from the ground, it doesn't matter. I'm untethered by my gear to hunt the best setup for the situation instead of hunting for a tree that my gear can use. My current course setup consists of the Phantom Saddle, Tethered One Sticks, and the Predator Platform, and along with an assortment of their accessories. So if you want to up your mobile game, head over to tetherednation.com. If you're like me, you spend a lot of time pouring over maps, looking at weather data, all in an effort to help predict when and where my best times are to hunt. It'd be nice if there was a reliable source with all this information in one place. Enter the Spartan Forge app. Unlike some other predictive apps on the market, Spartan Forge was created from military combat intelligence experience tailored for hunters and stands at the nexus of machine learning and whitetail deer hunting. No more man-made algorithms. This is a predictive model based on real GPS collared deer data, historical and predictive weather, and the next level of mapping imagery, all at my fingertips. I've had an opportunity to use the desktop version last year and have been using the iOS app this season, and it has replaced all my other mapping tools. Visit SpartanForge.ai and sign up today, or head to your iOS or Android app store and download it today. This podcast is brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. Skull Brew Coffee roasts premium single-origin coffee, guaranteeing to deliver the freshest coffee directly to your doorstep. The kicker? They're 2% for conservation certified and donate 10% of their proceeds back to organizations who support the interests of our hunting community. So go to SkullBrewCoffee.com and pick up one of their three-killer roasts and fuel your hunt and fill more tags with Skull Brew Coffee. Welcome to the Truth From a Stand Deer Hunting Podcast brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 263. Today we are talking DIY big buck strategy with Jesse Coots, so stay tuned.
is up, everyone? Happy Wednesday to you. I hope you are doing well. I hope you are feeling fine. And Happy New Year to all of you out there. Happy 2022. Made it one more year and got a lot of cool stuff uh, going to happen this year. Got some cool hunts that are going to happen this fall that I'm looking forward to, but I haven't completely abandoned the late season here in Pennsylvania. Like I'd mentioned in a previous podcast, I was hoping to get out a little bit uh, with this past week off. Majority of the week was spent <laughs> finishing my basement, which has been the never ending saga since like July, I think. And so I actually finished that this weekend, put the last piece of trim up and am done, done, done. I actually was able to have uh, spend the New Year's Eve holiday in my basement uh, at my bar, having a nice couple nice glasses of bourbon and a good cigar. So that was, so that was pretty exciting. That was kind of the inaugural party signifying that it is done and that project I can kind of put behind me. And I don't think I'm going to take on any projects this summer. Um, the past two summers have been filled with just working pretty much every weekend. Previous year was on the trailer. This year was on the, um, this year was on the, on the basement. So this summer, I think I'm going to try to take the summer off from any, any big projects, but I did manage to find a couple days and head out to do a little bit of late season hunting. I actually went to the, the piece that I've talked about that I scouted last, you know, last winter into the spring. And I hunted once in October and managed to get up there, uh, for about two and a half days this, this past week, unfortunately didn't have any snow, wet conditions, just rainy and stuff like that. Uh, so it wasn't ideal for, for late season hunting and truth be told, didn't see a single deer, but it was really kind of a, you know, a, a, a combination mission. You know, a lot of times I've mentioned in this podcast and others that I've been on that a lot of times the late season, I'll kind of use as a, a way to jumpstart my, my, my scouting for the upcoming year. Uh, knowing that deer may after gun season, maybe, you know, maybe may hard to come by. Um, and so I don't necessarily put all my eggs in that basket. I really just try to go out and look for deer. Um, and in the absence of that, I start trying to make a game plan for the upcoming year, especially if I'm in places that I have very limited information that I'm looking to try to hunt, you know, in the, in the future, this place has great deer. I've talked about it before the caliber of deer that I had on camera this past year really kind of let me know that it's a place I definitely want to spend some more time, but <clears throat> they're really kind of the sign that I had found previously was kind of minuscule. It was enough to kind of get me started and get some cameras placed and, and, and do some inventory and stuff like that. But as the season turned from summer to fall, I kind of lost a lot of those deer and some of them stuck around, but it, it, I was getting a lot of, you know, nighttime pictures and stuff like that. So what I really needed to do was try to go and put some boots on the ground and start to try to figure out where they might have some hidey holes, where they might feel comfortable in daylight and things like that. And after doing some, you know, map scouting, checking out Spartan Fords and stuff like that, and just trying to look at topo lines and figuring out how deer might move and things of that nature. I ended up doing some recon on this past trip, and that was kind of the benefit of it. Didn't see deer, but did a lot of learning on this piece and actually feel really, really good about what I had seen. So, so some of my hypotheses that I had kind of going into this week to, to do some hunting and where I thought I might find better sign uh, ended up playing out. And I had one camera kind of placed uh, in an area that I was <clears throat> had my fingers crossed that I would get daylight movement uh, in in it, at least November that I felt like it was a good kind of rut funnel, if you will. And that kind of played out to where I did get some really good daylight inventory with some really good bucks in this one particular area. Um, I think going forward, it's probably going to be primarily a rut hunt spot for me, at least in the near future, only because <clears throat> I don't have it really dialed in yet to to put on, in my opinion, to put on you know, really effective October hunts, maybe 
mid-October to later October when you start to get a little bit more of that movement. But early October, would I be when I'd be relying on bed hunting kind of exclusively? Um, I don't think I'm I'm not there yet with with this particular property. And who knows? I, I may never get there with this property. It may always kind of be a later October and November type of uh, type of situation. But with that, I did learn a ton, and a lot of the things that I had thought and hypotheses I had did kind of prove out to be true. The next step will be just to see if we can start to put the puzzle pieces together and actually see deer uh, from a tree or in a hunt setting when we roll around to to next fall. But with that, we're going to go ahead and get ready to jump into today's podcast. Won't belabor this up front. One quick thing, head over to truthfromthestand.com. Head to the merch tab, check out the Truth From The Stand merch, use the promo code TFTS21 and pick yourself up some sweet swag. Today on the show, I've got my buddy Jesse Coots on. Jesse is a fella from New York. You may or may not know of him. He's one of those guys that um, he's been on some podcasts, uh, but I think you'd still call him a, an unknown or a quiet killer, if you will. Um, dude kills big deer, uh, whether it's New York, Kansas, you know, Colorado, elk hunting, whatever it is. He's just one of those guys that happens to kill Magnum, Magnum, you know, the Magnum of whatever species he happens to be chasing. I did a podcast with my buddies from Exodus talking about, you know, kind of the five under the radar unknown DIY best kind of DIY bow hunters. And he was on, he was on that list and he was in my top five. And I think he made the final top five of, of that. So if you haven't checked that out, check out the Exodus outdoor gear podcast where we, where we broke all that down. But after that, Jesse's a guy that I wanted to have on for a while. Um, you know, he's, he's calculated, but he's aggressive at the same time. Um, but he's very multiple in how he hunts. Um, it's really whatever the situation calls for. He's going to, he's going to do that. And, 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 and the way he kind of goes about it is like, you just kind of have to, you know, go through the paces and, and, and figure things out, you know, somewhat on your own. Jesse's one of those just kind of do it yourself guys from, from the, from the ground up. That's kind of his attitude. Um, He's a hardcore bow hunter and has been getting it done for a long time, has the has the credentials to kind of back it up. So without further ado, we're going to go ahead and jump into this conversation with Jesse, and I hope you guys dig it as much as I did. And as always, thank you all for listening. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. And today I have on the line a gentleman that I probably should have had on a long time ago. Um, he came up in a recent conversation with some buddies as we were talking about some of the lesser known or what I like to refer to as quiet killers that, you know, maybe aren't on the front page of, of hunting magazines and so forth, but, uh, consistently get it done, get it done in a multitude of States and in a bunch of different ways. Um, this gentleman is from New York. It is none other than Mr. Jesse Coots. What's going on, man. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for the invite, Clint. Yeah, you bet, man. I appreciate you, uh, you coming on this shit show, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> we, uh, we talk some deer hunting. We are, uh, we are not, uh, politically correct here necessarily. We just like to talk, uh, talk bow hunting and talk, talk to dudes that like to get after it. And you, uh, you fit the bill of all those things. Oh, well, sounds good. Jeez. I didn't know you weren't politically correct. I would have asked to have been on this a long time ago. It's great. Right up my alley then. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. We don't, we don't pull any punches here, man. We just like to like to get to the straight, uh, the straight dope. But, uh, how was, uh, how was your holiday, man? Good. Oh, it was great, Clint. Yeah, thanks for asking. It was good. The kids, um, we, we took some time off. Kids were great here in New York. It was really nice, um, which I don't say much nice about New York very often, but they extended our season, um, which I'm not real happy about, but uh, it was really nice to be able to hunt um, right up to Christmas, and then season opened on the 26th, so uh, my daughter and I had a few extra tags. So we've been we've been tipping does over with the muzzleloaders, and uh, 
we did take our bow out the other day and she, my daughter went to reach for it. And she's like, my bow is so cold. I can't even hold on to it. Said, yeah. We'll, <laughs> we'll muzzleloader hunt from here out. Right. But, uh, yeah. The holidays were great, man. How about yours? They were good, man. I mean, other than me, me and my daughter, and my wife all got sick. Um, my daughter got whatever it was that she brought home from school and it just kind of made its rounds to the house. So finally, I think today or yesterday, I don't remember which day it was, but my wife and I both woke up and we're like, all right, I feel normal again. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like where it wasn't like coughing fit, head hurt, you know, the whole, the whole kind of nine. So, you know, on the mend, but otherwise Christmas was good. I got this whole week off, uh, in between Christmas and new year's. So I'm redoing my basement. So I've been kind of remodeling that and spent, you know, Sunday and, and Monday kind of all day today doing that. And then I packed up the travel trailer and I'm getting ready to, to hop in that thing either right after we get done or early tomorrow morning and heading, uh, heading to a piece that you and I talked about a little bit when we talked on the phone that I scouted in the off season and got a chance to hunt it once in October. And I'm headed back up there to hopefully to do some hunting, but mainly more than anything, just going to try to spend some time in the woods and, and get more familiar with the place and see if I can't lay eyes on some areas that I think some of those, those big deer that I was sharing some of the pictures of, of, of with you, um, see if I can't put a game plan together for the, for the fall, if, if nothing else, but for, uh, for a couple of those guys. So that's the plan. Oh, awesome. Well, late season hunts like this are nice. It's nice to, uh, it's nice to slip away, especially when you get, you send some pictures of some pretty good deer. It's just good to know you got some bangers in the area to chase. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It was a little, a little bit surprising. You know, I'm not, uh, I'm not going to say, I'm, I haven't thrown in the towel for late season. Um, but it's one of those things where I just don't know a whole lot about the area yet. And I need to spend, I just need to spend time there. I need to put, I need to continue to put boots on the ground and just, and walk the woods and, see what it's, see what it's telling me. Cause I know that like last year was really about confirming deer were there, like the caliber of deer that I was hoping would be there. And now, you know, the next year is, is how do we start to put a game plan together for them? And truthfully, it's probably a two to three year kind of process until I feel real good about knowing the area, just considering that it is a travel kind of destination place a couple hours away from me. So I don't get to spend a whole lot of time there. Um, and I know that's something that's up your alley. So we'll just kind of jump into things, man, before we get, before we get cranking here for those that are listening that, you know, maybe don't know who you are, or haven't listened to a previous podcast that, that you've, uh, that you've been on, you know, where are you from? I think we covered that, uh, you're from New York, but what do you do for a living? Yeah, don't hold that against me. I'm from New York. Um, I, uh, I grew up farming and, and working construction and, um, welding is, was kind of always my niche and I'm into custom cars. So when I, about 15 years ago, well, all the way through high school, I built custom cars or just built hot rods. And, uh, about, I don't know if it was 15, 12, 13 years ago, I built my own shop and, and, um, I was always busy with side work. So I just kind of took it full time and I've been booked ever since, um, which is kind of a blessing and a curse, you know, <laughs> you've always got somebody calling you and we're booked right now about three years in advance. So wow. it's really nice, but it's kind of a headache because now instead of being the guy that's just taking time off, it's like <laughs> you're the boss and the owner. And it's like, it's really hard to, hard to balance, to, hard to balance it, but, uh, yeah. it's all good. It's all, uh, mental toughness. It's all good. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Man. What kind of, so I got to admit, man, I'm always jealous of guys that are, that are mechanically inclined. I grew up, you know, on a, I guess on a farm as well. My grandfather had a farm that we kind of lived my, my stepdad and my mom lived on that property. And then when my, before my parents split up, we lived on a, we lived on a farm there as well. Um, and so I did learn how to weld growing up, but it was farm welding. It was just like, 
it's just so something wouldn't break. You know what I mean? Type of thing where it's like, hey, let's weld <laughs> yeah, this tractor yeah. hitched together. It doesn't have, it doesn't need to be pretty. It just got to get the job done. And then I actually went to work. Uh, I don't remember what it was. I don't remember if I was in high school or if maybe I just was like just had gone to college or whatever it was. But I ended up working at Cannondale, which is like a mountain bike factory that was oh, in my, yeah, yeah. yeah that was in my hometown. And my stepdad actually ran the welding department there. He's an awesome welder and still welds, you know, around the house, like to this day when he's working on his car, or, you know, or his, his cars or his truck or whatever the case is. And he kind of taught me to weld around the farm and stuff like that. And then whenever I went to work at Cannondale over the one summer, I was working on this carbon fiber bike, but I had the whole system down to where I could get all my work done basically by lunchtime. And my stepdad had left that place at that point. Uh, but the guy that kind of worked under him, um, I forget his name now. It's, 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 it's escaping me, but he was a motocross rider is what he kind of did. And he worked at Cannondale as well. And, uh, he was like, Hey, if you don't have anything else to do, he's like, if you want to come back to the welding department, he's like, I'll, I'll start teaching how to weld aluminum. So I go back there, they give me scrap and, you know, I, you know, weld aluminum tubing together and stuff like that. And I finally got good enough over the course of the summer where they actually had me doing production bikes. And that was like, oh, wow. yeah, it was awesome. Like I loved doing it. And it was one of those things I always regretted that I didn't keep up with. Cause I was actually, I was actually pretty decent at welding, but it just was, was something that I, that I'd ever kept up with. And I'm always jealous when guys do that kind of stuff for a living because I'm the, one of the least mechanically inclined people you might ever run across. Jesse, like <laughs> it's uh, a, a, a nickname. My friend used to call me was Dr. Goodwrench because it was like anything I worked on. It was just, I would I ended up breaking it and, and never end up fixing it. So jealous of, of, uh, of you, you must be a pretty good TIG welder. If you, if you did some TIG welding for Cannondale, I mean, I've always mountain bikes. I'm always blown away with how precision the, the TIG welds are. So that's, yeah. You must have a pretty steady hand. Yeah. Hands were steady. Uh, understanding of mechanics and how things go together, probably not my strong suit. So if you give me something, some metal to put together, I could probably make right. that happen. But aside from that, um, but what kind of cars you build, man, what kind of like custom stuff do you do? You do? Well, I specialize, uh, I really love early Fords. Um, and we kind of specialize in, in kind of the cream of the crop of early American hot rods, which is 1932, 1933 and 1934 Fords. Um, those are kind of our niche. Um, and once we built a few of those, we're, we're, you know, we're kind of notorious for really good metal work and, um, just all around nailing the stance and, and the building of the car. So once we, you know, social media is really nice for that. And once you, uh, once you get your name out there and the right guys see that quality work, um, they come from all over. So right. that's kind of the, the era car we really specialize in. However, a lot of those guys that have those cars also have, different vehicles. And once you do one job for them, they want you building all their shit. So um, we'll build anything, but we, I really like 32, three, fours, but um, it's fun. I mean, it's fun to build anything that, that is what, you know, that is, I hate doing stereotypical stuff. So Mm -hmm. my customers are all great, but I won't build anything unless it's um, what I want. (laughs) I know it sounds rude, but I I want it. It's gotta be exciting and cool and, um, so we do that. We, we do that era car. I do a ton of, for some reason, 47 to 53 Chevy trucks. Um, seems like they're just through the roof hot, but, uh, that's pretty much what, what keeps us busy in the shop. Nice. That's cool, man. Cause I mean, it's, you're kind of, I think what I appreciate about folks that, that, that do that, you know, specifically is you're kind of keeping pieces of history alive, you know, like you're keeping history on the road, so to speak. Which, um, which is just cool because we often forget where kind of things came from or how they started or whatever the case is. And that's always kind of a nice reminder when you see a, 
a cool badass old car rolling down the road. Like I don't care if you don't if you're not into cars or not, man. When you see something like that rolling down the road, like you take a double take. And it's just kind yeah, of Yeah, good good for you. That's right. I I you can always tell if somebody's dead in their soul or not. Yeah. Because if you pull up to a stoplight with something that's chopped and slammed and just sitting there with a nasty idol, if you don't if you aren't somewhat curious in that, you died a long time ago. <laughs> that's the truth, man. I, I mean, I, I yeah. still I still like the smell of 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 gasoline like when a car fires up. I still like that smell like whenever, you know, when someone fires uh, up a Harley you know, it's like that yeah, smell. Yeah, fuel is the best. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, yeah. or even diesel, man. It just reminds me of being around the farm whenever I get like a good whiff of like a, you know, walk past a diesel truck or whatever. It just reminds me of growing up because that was what I smelled a lot whenever I was a kid. Right. You know, I was, hate I hate diesel. That's where, that's where we're different. <laughs> God, I hate the way my diesel smells. It's a sneaky bitch, but yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, well, we'll turn back to things, the ways we might be similar. I know, you know, you like to do a fair amount of travel hunting and in, and truth be told, I was actually just doing some stuff with a buddy of mine where they did this kind of, you know, unknown, you know, or quiet killers, if you will, like top five guys that people may or may not know a whole lot about that are just like really consistent and get it done. And and you were on my list. You know, you were one of the people that I brought up and was like, hey, this is a guy that, you know, no matter where you put him, like he he manages to kill big deer, big elk, doesn't matter what it is. He, he tends to figure it out, you know, and in, in you pretty much anywhere you go you you end up finding big deer but i first wanted to kind of start with kind of talking about your your hunting style you know just in just in general you know some guys are you know they might be from oklahoma or kansas and they're really good on the ground right or you might have guys that grow up in the mountains and they're really good at kind of you know mountain hunting or swamps or whatever the case is how would you classify your your hunting style um well, thanks for the kind words, first of all, um, and, I'm, and I'm happy to be included in such a in, in a good list. Um, I, I guess my hunting style—I can't remember who coined the phrase. It might have been Andy May. I, I don't know who said it first, but somebody said that I was a freestyle hunter, and um, that kind of hit home. It kind of makes sense to me, um, and I feel like that's something I always try and preach to people when they're when they're stuck or when they're trying to figure something out, um, you gotta, you gotta be a very independent and you have to have a big bag of tricks. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that is probably a good way to sum me up. I'm, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a decoy, uh, freak. However, I'm, I'm pretty good with decoys. Um, I, I don't, uh, there's some States I, I will not do any spot and stalk in. I think it's just going to, you're going to screw up your hunting. However, there's some States that all I do is spot and stalk. Um, you know, it, it, I think it probably reverts back to maybe my upbringing. Um, I, I probably had a little bit of an unorthodox upbringing and everything I do is somewhat, um, unorthodox, I guess. Um, even, you know, growing up playing sports, I started playing real competitive sports, which, which I think helped a lot. And, um, I played, you know, almost all my varsity sports I made at a young age at eighth and ninth grade. And, you know, at that age, you have to learn to attack people. You know, like when I wrestled, I learned that nobody ever shot anybody left-handed. I actually had a kid shoot on me left-handed in a tournament once, and it was awkward because we always practiced right-handed. So right then I started training everything left-handed. And when I played soccer, I started training left, you know, kicking with my left foot. And I, you know, you be, I became the varsity forward and left, left wing forward. That's because I was really good at kicking with my left foot and my right foot. Hmm. Um, so my hunting, you know, that just, I don't know, oddly enough, it's the way my life kind of evolved a little bit. I, I feel that you're really, you need to be diverse. And, um, 
when I started hunting out of, I wouldn't say my hunting was very diverse until I started hunting different states and I found, you know, a different cause and effect with everything I did. And um, I think that's one of the biggest dynamics, my personal opinion, that's missing with um, what's being preached a lot. And I, and I actually, I don't follow a lot of stuff, so I'm kind of, I'm definitely out of the loop. That's probably why I'm out of the rate under the radar or whatever. <laughs> right. Um, I'm not, I'm not very hip to anything. I kind of keep to myself. Um, but I think one of the biggest things that, that, um, is missing when people give advice is that, you know, if I give advice, it really, you have to listen, whether I'm talking about New York or Montana or Kansas or Illinois or Ohio or Arizona, because it, it's very relative. It's mm-hmm. important as to what that, what state that person's talking about. And I've heard a lot of really good advice. Um, it is really on point advice, but sometimes the person doesn't tell, you know, they really need to expose the state and why it's good and what mm. the hunting pressure is like there and what the age structure of the deer is there. Yeah. Um, I, I've heard some great rattling advice, but you can't do that in New York, or at least you can't do that in my area in New York, because we don't have, um, four and a half, five and a half year old deer that are tying up like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you can't rattle like you do when you're in Iowa. Um, I was in Iowa last year and it was just, it's a different world. Yeah. Um, so it, it actually hit home to me. It's like a lot of the stuff that over the years I've heard and seen on videos and read about, it's like, yeah, I could see how that's true and lucrative here, but it sure as hell doesn't work in New York. <laughs> right. No, I a hundred percent agree with you, man. And like the, the wrestling analogy, I grew up wrestling as well. I'm a big wrestling fan. Like I still watch college wrestling, kind of probably one of my favorite sports to watch. Um, and it's that idea of, you know, if you're wrestling a guy, you know, and I follow Penn state closely, just, you know, I'm a Penn state fan. Oh, but just, you're a, are you, you're in PA, right? Are yeah. You a PA guy? Yeah. Yeah. I'm a oh PA yeah. Guy. You guys have great, you guys are great. Big, big uh, wrestling background. Yeah. Yeah. And so like hearing you say that makes sense because I just think about, you know, Penn State's really dominant, but when you watch them get into like the the Big Tens and in the NCAA tournament, and they really start to game plan for their opponents, you know, I'll, you know, the one example that stuck out to, to me was um, I think I forget who I think it was Nick Lee was wrestling Jaden Ironman last year from Iowa for the national title, and he lost to him <laughs> in, the, in the in the Big Tens, and the guy likes to run an underhook and and basically do like. A, a variation of like a lateral drop kind of is like one of his big like moves. Like he hits almost everybody with it and you could tell like he did his homework and Nick Lee basically wasn't going to give him that underhook. And he basically wrestled the match with one arm because he was just keeping his one arm back that he knew he wanted to underhook him on. And he was just going to take that one thing away from him. And it was matching his style, you know, it's like, and he wouldn't wrestle that way against anybody else really. But that was like the right. one thing that he could, that he that's basically the reason why he lost the big 10 tournaments. Cause he hit him with one big lateral drop to his back and he never can make up the difference. And, uh, and so that makes a lot of sense the way I try to describe it to people. Like, you know, I'm, you've been doing this, you know, and hunting freestyle and, you know, being a, an amoeba kind of, you know, for a lot longer than I have, but that's one of the things I try to do every year is I try to adopt something new every year. Um, you know, so whether it's like honey more from the ground or whether it's spot and stock or whatever the case is, I try to add something to my bag of tricks. And the way I kind of have always described it was, you know, watching football and knowing that you want to be multiple. And so you want to be able to kind of shift between four, three, three, four, you know, sub package football and stuff like that to match up with whatever the, you know, with whatever the personnel groupings are. And that's kind of how I've always kind of equated it. And it's interesting to hear someone kind of use wrestling and just 
it's you're zigging when people are zagging really, man. And I think it's freaking brilliant. Yeah. Thanks. Well, I would actually probably say it's the opposite of brilliant. It's almost common sense. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> well, but, I mean, I, oftentimes there's simple very, things, very, there's simple things are the big the things that make the difference, right? Cause people just don't pick up on it because it takes effort, right? It's right. simple, but it that, takes effort. That's right. Well, and it takes the balls to um, go outside of mainstream. You know, you do stuff that you're not supposed to, or, uh, or maybe not, maybe it's not so you're not supposed to, but you do, you always do what, you know, you hear you're supposed to do. And, um, and, and I love your analogy of that match. I, I remember watching, obviously we've all watched Kale Sanderson and mm-hmm. the only match I ever watched him lose, he went for his, just his, his stereotypical ankle pick takedown and he got it. I can't remember who the guy was. I just mm-hmm. saw this the other day. It's the only match I've ever seen. You'd probably know it better than me, but I don't know who he's wrestling somebody from like Israel or something. Yeah. Crazy I was going to say it was, it was in a world tournament of some sort. Cause he never <laughs> lost at all. I mean, he was undefeated in college, you know, so, correct. Yeah. 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 No, it, it was, it's in a world tournament. I'm sure you, I'm sure somebody knows the match. I, I love Kale Sanderson, but I, I'm not a, uh, I mean, if I click on my Facebook, either, <laughs> either hunting stuff pops up or car stuff or MMA and wrestling. So right. if I see a MM, if I see a, a Kale Sanderson video, I watch it. And I yeah. watched this one and he ankle picked the guy right away um, and took him down. And you could see that the, the guy was prepared for it, but just wasn't, it was his first time tying up with Kale. Mm-hmm. And, but that was it. That was the last time Kale was able to get that ankle pick on that guy. And that guy was just like, just like the match you described. He knew what he had to do from that on. He knew he couldn't allow that. And yeah. he ended up beating him. And I, I was blown away with it. And he beat him because Kale couldn't do that. I mean, Kale was extremely well-versed, but, um, right. I mean, yeah, you got to take the obvious. And when it's obvious, when somebody's so strong at something, you can't just let them have it. You got to take that away from them. And it's the same with, with, with hunting. Um, you, know, you got to take away the, the animals. Animals are stupid. You know, I know people hate hearing that. They love talking about smart old bucks, but they're an animal and they have instincts and they have natural, um, they have natural senses that just keep them alive. And you've, you just, you got to take that shit away from them and you got to outsmart their natural senses. And, once you break it down that way, it's it's pretty simple. You just got to take away their strong points. <laughs> you know, just right. like when you're wrestling somebody, you got to figure out what they're really strong at and don't let them have it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as you were saying that, I was just thinking that's like, that's, if you think of it in those terms, I mean, that's where, you know, what's the one thing that will kill you before anything, right? Like if you're hunting, if you're, if you're wrestling, right, it's like, we just gave two really good examples, that ankle pick or that lateral drop, right? So you just don't give them that in hunting the thing that over gets overlooked so often, but will blow you up before it even starts is just your entry and exit. And a lot oh, of times yeah. people just don't yeah. pay attention to that. Right. I mean, that's like, to me, that's like the, I mean, that's the critical component, right? I mean, I, I would imagine you, you would agree. And you're probably pretty meticulous about how you're entering and exiting or going the long way. If you have to, if you've, if you've, if you've kind of found an even sweeter kind of way to get in. Yeah. Well, you, you must've listened to a podcast or something <laughs> because I am a, I am almost a weirdo when it comes to my entrance and exit. And, um, it's very, it's everything to me. I mean, it's, it's everything. And especially where I come from in New York, it's just hell. There's so many hunters and there's just so much pressure. And I hate to, I hate to say it, but I'm going to say it. there's just so many idiots that mm-hmm. just screw everything up. And these deer are extremely high pressured and they just, you just kind of send them flying. So when you can hunt, even if it's a, you know, a five or six acre chunk, when you can, when you can hunt that effectively and not let the deer in that, in that thick spot know that they're being hunted, you're in the game. 
but you know, once you screw it up, I mean, it's, it's screwed up. So yeah, entrance and exit is very, very important and always doing it downwind and always knowing what the wind is. Um, and I always try and have sets hung. I kind of have, I'm not, I'm I'm a pretty big fan of, or I'm a very big fan of just hunting one deer of hunting a target buck. Mm -hmm. But like anyone, when you have your home state, I mean, you're definitely going to have a bunch of pre-hung stands. And usually when I hunt a target buck, I almost hang it. I hang it for him. And a lot of times I hang it and kill him in the, you know, relatively soon. And then I take that stand down. But, um, Mm -hmm. I do have some spots that are kind of no brainer travel corridors and I have stands hung for North wind, South wind, East wind, West wind, whatever, just in case that opportunity arises, I can slip in on a, on a, on an odd wind. And I really love killing on an odd wind, but, um, the biggest thing is I, I do think, and everybody says, Oh yeah, you know, everybody knows that everybody knows it, but a lot of people also know that exercise is good for you and it'll keep you alive. That doesn't mean <laughs> they can do it. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's no. the same with really being a, being a, be, being a freak about wind. My daughter's 14. Um, and she's, she's really awkwardly well-versed. She, she really gets it. And she's been going with me since she was, you know, really in a bassinet. And, uh, just this year we set up on this little feet on this little cornfield. Uh, it's an L shape and, um, the wind was good for us and I'm not very hip on my phone at all. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I, I, I checked the wind when I get there and I didn't realize the winds were going to change we sat about 80 yards apart. She was in one corner and I was in another corner. We were kind of after this buck. It's so fun to have her hunting now because <laughs> it really doubles your odds of getting yeah. killed. But uh, we, we weren't really sure we were going to get a shot at him, but we wanted to kind of pin him down. And um, anyways, the wind changed and I could feel it. And I thought, shit. And she was closer to the woods than I was. I can shoot further, you know, so I kind of mm-hmm. put her so where, and she texted me right away. I think we need to get out of here. The wind is wrong. And I thought this fucking kid's got it. You yeah. know, I mean, so yeah. many people, even with the wind wrong, would just sit there yep. and, um, she knew to get out. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, that's an, it, that's an important thing. Yeah. And that's incredible. It's at 14 that she's already picking up on that, you know, cause that's like something that plenty of, of, of older, of older dudes just they'll, they'll, uh, I'm going to just, they might feel it switch and know they should get out, but they're stubborn or lazy or, or both, you know, and they're just going, I'm going to ride it out. I'm here. This is where I'm going to sit. You know, it's all there is to it, you know? And at that point they might as well just, you know, go home because their odds of, of seeing good deer at that point is pretty much nil, but you, you mentioned mm-hmm. odd wind. What, what did you mean by that? Are you talking about like a just off wind or giving the deer the wind? Like, how are you, how do you cut the wind whenever you're kind of working a particular deer and maybe and say, you know, like how he's rolling through an area or where he's bedded or whatever the case is, you know, how aggressively are you going to play that wind? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm super aggressive with the wind. It just depends on, on the wind really. Mm-hmm. Um, here and almost everywhere I've ever hunted. I mean, you're, you're, except for in the mountains, you know, your prevailing Southwest wind is your, that's what you're almost always going to get south to mm-hmm. southwest or west to southwest wind. So almost all my stands, my, my kind of, I guess I call them observation stands or my go-to, you know, rut stands. I, I hang for a southwest wind. Um, and a lot of these deer I find, um, and I would say your average good hunter around here probably, probably sets their stands up for southwest. But I, I know that the deer have these guys pegged. Mm-hmm. And they know how to, how to wind these, these, all these woods. 
And all these deer, it seems like, boy, a lot of them, some of my biggest bucks, um, I can, I, I've been able to glass them every night. And it's like, they're, you cannot get to them because they are set up for a southwest wind. But as soon as that wind switches, if it's an east wind, they're in trouble. Like, that's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's go time. And that's really when I go for their throats and, and I, I either blow them out or, or kill them. And I, the one I killed this year, I told my wife, like, I have to hunt tonight. I have to hunt. It's a, it was a, it was actually a really odd Southeast wind and I needed it to, to be able to close the gap on the, on the buck I was after and sure shit, I killed him. And then I, you know, a typical, typical, I had to tell my wife like, Hey, do you remember when I said to you, like I was going to kill this deer tonight? <laughs> <laughs> you you got to bring it up to your wife that you were right. Right. But, uh, that shit's really important because it seems like these deer, deer are like humans. I mean, they, they have habits to keep them alive, but they'll be lazy, you know? And, and, um, uh, they'll be lazy and, and they, they don't uh even though the wind changes on them when they bet it's it's a southwest wind and, and they still want to come out to this certain staging area and even though the wind is at their back they'll do it so you know i've I've heard other people and other and i'm not questioning anybody or anything but i've heard other people say like oh the deer only travel with their nose in the wind and <laughs> yeah <laughs> it is just not true and it's just not it's not even possible it's, yeah it well, doesn't happen deer are lazy just like us yeah, my my buddy and I always have a saying like if they only ever traveled on a uh, with the wind in their face, yeah. all of our deer would be in California because we get predominantly south and, yeah. <laughs> and west winds. You know what I mean? So like that doesn't right. that exactly doesn't fly. Right. You know, it's uh, yeah. but it's yeah. interesting that you mentioned that east wind because there's a guy and I forget his name. A buddy of mine talked to this is a little while ago, but he swears by east winds like and it's probably and I never really thought about it until you started talking about you know. And yeah, because I, I like you, I get a lot of southwest, you know, west southwest winds around here as well. And that's predominantly what I get. But this dude, I think he's from Michigan, if I'm not mistaken, his favorite wind is an east wind. And it's because of what you basically said, which is like he gets that wind switch. It kind of throws that deer's consistency of their world into flux for like a brief period of time, maybe a day where they kind of have to recalibrate, reorient. And if that buck is not giving you opportunities in daylight or making mistakes, that wind switch is when he might will be the most likely time he would make a mistake based on the like uh, a wind based mistake, if you will. Is that does that sound fair? Yeah, well, in my opinion, it's that you can get close to him. Mm-hmm. You, you can you can you can get closer to him. Um, I can think of a like three or four spots in particular that are just pockets. I I always call them a pocket, and um, you just can't get into those pockets. Um, I mean, people do, they go in there and they just screw it up and that's why the deer stay alive, but you can't get in there with a Southwest wind, but, uh, say it's an East wind. I mean, you can literally walk up to the edge of it. And I mean, I've really, I'm not sure how many I killed, I guess, and with an off wind, but gosh, I'd say I've killed, I mean, 20 of my top bucks have come with it with, with just an odd wind. I mean, uh, hmm. you know, 20 or 30, I mean, a lot of them. Um, because when I have an odd wind, I mean, unless it's my kid being born, I'm not hunting, I'm not doing anything other than hunting. I'm going hunting somewhere. Right. And, um, because you can really get close to those pockets and, mm-hmm. um, it, you know, even a South wind, you can cheat it. You, you can't, when it's a straight South wind, you just, you have to stay on the North side of where they are. Yeah. Um, East wind is golden because it's almost always Southwest or West wind. So when it's East like that, it's great. And it's the same thing with a, with a straight North wind, um, actually the deer my daughter killed this year it was a straight north wind we set up on a hedgerow we knew where the where the deer was um and we just stayed on the down 
on, on the downwind side of it. Whereas if it was a Southwest wind, you can't hunt that spot. Like it would have been. Mm-hmm. So actually both of us really killed this year on odd winds. I mean, so it's, mm-hmm. it's just, you know, it's, it's, that's your simplicity of picking up common sense stuff and, and, you know, okay, this wind, you know, checking the wind and knowing like, all right, it's, this is the wind tonight. You know, you, you gotta be um, observant to that, but you also have to be prepared for it mm-hmm. in the off season and know like where you would attack something, you know, even if you don't have a stand hung, you got to know the tree and that's really important. Know the area. And, and a lot of my best bucks have really come from hanging a set and killing them. I've probably killed 10 bucks by hanging a set and getting it and at least getting it in the morning and get it that evening and kill them. So, and then, literally take it all back down. <laughs> right. But, right. You know, I think that's helped me a lot and, um, you know, being, being risky that way. Right. I'm, I'm curious, man, you know, how long, you know, I, I guess the short way to put it, the simple way to put it, I guess, is playing the long game versus, versus the shorter game. Right. Like, so we were talking at the top a little bit about this late season hunt that I'm getting ready to kind of take off on. And it's really kind of, it's a hunt, but it's also, really kind of 50% probably me trying to get my shit together for next year, maybe the year after learn, trying to learn this, learn this piece and spending more time on, on with boots on the ground. How often are you playing the long game on a buck where it's like, you may know he's around or maybe it's a piece of property where it's like, okay, I know there's good deer here. And now I just need to figure out like the places that these deer are going to be killable. Like, is it, you know, is it two years? Is it three years? Or is it like, I see buck and it could be a new property. And if it's a big deer, I'm going to go kill it. And, I, and I'm going to do it that year. What's your kind of approach to to that? And it's, let's take it first for your home state, because it might be different whenever you go out of state. Yeah. Well, great point. That's exactly right. Um, so every, everything in my game right now is long game. Um, mm-hmm. It's, I, I don't really, this time of year, I actually struggle because I mean, it would take a big deer, even if I saw a 150 this morning today, um, I really don't want to kill it. It's so close to making it you know, right. it's so close to surviving. And I actually might have a true giant to chase next year. So, uh, I mean, obviously that's talking a lot of smack, but I, I don't even want to see a 150. Um, I just don't want to see him. I, I want to yeah. see him after season closes. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, however, admittedly, I mean, that wasn't my, that that comes with you know a lot of years of experience um uh, 20 years ago show me 150 in december and you're getting dumped you know <laughs> right so and, and and really i i probably took a lot of my um, i mean i've killed a lot of big deer late season um maybe not a lot but i've killed eight or ten pretty good bucks in the late season that you know i would never kill now because it's like jesus he's he's 140 and like he literally would have been a 160 170 next year right um, he was so close to making it. So everything I do at this point, I've got a house full of racks. So I, I don't, um, it's easier. It's a lot easier for me to say like, Oh, you shouldn't shoot that because I, <laughs> because right. I did shoot them. You know, I, I've already, I've shot a bunch of shit. Um, so right now it's literally everything is long-term. Um, I, the, the hard part with that is, it's almost not even realistic. It's, it's very, it's almost disappointing because I, I don't even know a deer that I would want to kill two years from now in my home state. Um, now throw a different state in there. Um, and, and you hate to be this way, but when you're out of state, especially when you're hunting public land, um, you've got to figure out your number, what, what you're going to be happy with. And I know a lot of people get all worked up over, you know, 
that shit. But right. as far as I'm concerned, I want to kill a big shit. I want to kill big, I, I don't even mind killing a 140, but he better be a six point and right. heavy and right. huge. You know what I mean? Right. right. Um, but, uh, you know, so I don't want to offend somebody by saying, you know, oh, you shouldn't kill this or you shouldn't kill, you kill whatever makes you happy, but be it known. If you if you're gonna drop your standards just because you're in a different state, um, you're probably never gonna get to that level of killing big shit, real right. big shit. So, um, I mean, last year I had an Iowa tag and I had a great piece of property to hunt, and I passed up deer that I have absolutely no business passing up. And you know, admittedly, there's a there's a chunk of me that's like, God, I wish I would have. There's two of them that were. Uh, <laughs> in the high 160s yeah right. it's really bad right. high 160s 170s that um i mean i'm just not that guy i'm not that caliber guy i'm, I'm not i don't have private ground um 170s big to me and yeah. I, the one had so much trash that he really i passed him up i think three times and one time i had him underneath my i have a great i got tons of video of him but um you know if you're ever going to kill a uh a 190 180 190 class deer you you can't do it when you're killing a high 160 class deer right um so i everything for me is long term i'm not saying that's the way to be mm -hmm. i'm just saying that's the stage i'm in right now i can also see myself digressing um mm -hmm. not in the next decade but maybe 15 20 years from now and going out with my grandkids or my you know even with my daughter i mean i I don't care what she kills. I mean, she, she's more picky than any 40 year old guy in the state of New York. I mean, she, <laughs> she really won't shoot anything. That's I struggle to get her to shoot 115 inch deer. Like she, she gets it, you know, she yeah. understands it. Um, so she's all, I almost feel bad for her. She needs to just, and she's killed a lot of, a lot of deer already for a, a 14 year old girl. She's got three, three good bucks um, wow. under her belt. Um, yeah. She killed a great one this year, but, she also passed a ton of shit and I really felt bad for her. Like you're, you're passing up opportunity and you're going to eat it. And somehow she pulled it off and shot a great buck. But I, I hate to say it like that was really, it wasn't lucky. It was lucky that that deer was able to stay alive. And she was able to get one in them. Right. Um, so that can come back and haunt you. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which it, it has for all of us, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that was probably a long winded answer to that question, but yeah, I'm long term, I, I guess I would say, sorry about that. Yeah, no, no, that was, that was perfect. Cause I mean, you know, I think it kind of goes back to the, you know, the kind of saying of, you know, you're, you're killing the deer. How, how do I want to say this? The deer you're going to kill in season two years from now, you're actually killing this, this winter as far as like learning, figuring out how to kill him. Right. Like, so you're, oh, absolutely. you know, absolutely. so you're watching yep. deer or, or an area, you might not even know there's a big deer there at that moment, you know what I mean? But you know, there's a really good spot and you're kind of scouting it, figuring it out. And you know, like, Hey, whenever I see a big deer, this is where a big deer is going to hide when there is one, you know, and whenever there is one, I'm going to know where he's at. And it might be two years before I end up hunting this spot, you know, or this piece of, you know, this piece of, of ground or whatever the case is, but I've got it dialed in to where it's like, whatever deer I want to kill on this piece of property two years from now. I'm going to kill him because of what I figured out today or what I figured out the, the past two years. Right. It's kind of the, the, the approach. Yeah. I mean, if you can, I, I never get too worked. You got to know the ground and you got to know the area. We're really, we're, we're all, we're so spoiled now with Onyx and, mm -hmm. and, and Google earth and stuff. I mean, you can, I was never great. I, I did it a lot studying uh, topographical maps. And, you know, I would go to Southwest Ohio and, beat the shit out of myself in, in the Wayne national forest. And, but mm -hmm. truthfully, I mean, I did, I did good down there. 
but it, that just came from work ethic. It, it didn't really come from being a good map reader <laughs> right, right. as much as I'd loved. But it, but now that you really look at, I mean, you're looking at a live aerial, um, you can figure out a piece of ground quicker. Shit. I think it's important to um, know big bucks and, and understand big bucks. And it's also important to know people mm-hmm. um, and know how other guys are going to attack this. And if there's a, if there's an easy way to attack where a big buck's live and you can bet your sweet ass, there's already five guys there. So you've got to figure out once these guys screw it up, I never try and kill a buck uh, on a piece that I know other guys are hunting um, by the way the buck would normally move because, uh, well, I shouldn't say it. I, I will early season, but if it's out of state, I mean, these guys are on it already. You got to figure out what's, how this deer is going to react after these clowns spook them. Right. Um, and that's something for years. I never advertised to anybody, but I mean, right. the cat's out of the bag. There's, there's a million other guys that are savvy and are doing the same thing. It's right. no secret, but you got to figure out what everybody else is doing as well. So you got to know ground, you got to know deer, but you also got to know that your competition, or at least know the thought process of your competition. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the one thing I know people, you know, they'll leave their stands up over, you know, during the course of the, the off season, won't take them down. Like Pennsylvania, you're supposed to take them down. And some people get worked up about it. And I kind of look at it as a bonus. Like when I'm scouting, I'm learning about the deer. And whenever I see people's, you know, ladder stands that they've drug into the timber or hang ones they've left hang or whatever. And it's not one that's super mobile. It's like, I know where those people are going to be. You know, it's like, so yeah, I, I just yeah. start, I start marking all of them on a map and I'm like, all yeah. right, this is where I think this deer is living. This is where I know he's at, where there I've seen him or I've got a trail camp, trail camera pictures of him consistently or whatever the case is. And I'm like, well, here's where all the hunting pressure is. This is their, these are their access routes. So where is he going to go when hunting season starts? Right. And that's, and you can, and you can almost eliminate everything downwind to where he's sitting and you can eliminate. Yeah. It's always amazed to me if, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Some guys hunt some stands too, morning and night. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and which in the big timber, I guess that that's, that's acceptable. But, um, yeah, I, I, you can, you're exactly right. I marked everybody's tree stands too, because then I know like, Oh, this is burned. Like yeah. I know this sucks. Uh, and I'm always amazed how these guys will hunt these beautiful bedding grounds. I mean, they're just awesome and they're tore up. And, uh, they'll go in there on an evening hunt and it's like, Oh my God, mm-hmm. this is, this is ruined. But you hunt the escape route and you shooting big bucks. Right. Know? Yeah, exactly. That was, that was exactly how Chad, I, I think you talked to Chad the other day. Um, I think he gave you a buzz. Um, that's how he killed, you know, I think he finally green scored it. It was 174 inches in Kansas that he killed while we were out there and he found oh, the- okay. this Chad. Sylvester. Uh, Sylvester. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yep. 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 Okay. Yep. Yeah. Good buddy of mine. We hunt together pretty much every year, go somewhere together and, and hunt. And, uh, that's how he killed that hammer in Kansas. He found his bed and, you know, and was like kind of by accident was like, Oh shit, here's a, here's a huge bed. And it's all, you know, kind of got down and was looking to see what he could see and saw this rub line. And he's like, well, the damage is done. I'm already here, you know? And he's like, I should, I'm just going to walk this exit trail and see where it goes. And he walked the exit trail and dumped him off to this stream and, he set up there the next day and shot him on the ground at five yards. Like, <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. You know yeah, what I that's, mean? That's one of those states. Uh, I mean, and there's a lot of states like that, but that's the nice thing about being a, a non-resident. Um, you're going for broke. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're all in it's, it's in really sometimes when I scout, which I hate, hate to say this, but especially on big public land, I'll beat the shit out of it. 
and um, I mean, you bump something. You just mm-hmm. gently bump them, and then get if it's big, um, you figure it out, and you know right then, like, all right. And if I scout something, I before I had kids, I used to I used to drive places, shed hunt, scout. I never, you know, I used to beat up bedding grounds just to bump them, and then you, I would try and go out for two days and come back in. And then try and bump that same deer again. And if you bump that same deer, then it's like, yep, this is, and you can tell a big buck, I mean, mm-hmm. like, even when they, when they don't have their antlers, it's like, this is, this is his bed. Like, so that's, I mean, that's a great tactic. I mean, as, as a resident, you hate that you hate people in there screwing shit up, but, um, right. Unfortunately, I mean, it's a pretty, it's a pretty lethal way to, to, if you can't glass that stuff, if you roll them out of their bed, and do your homework, um, yeah, that's a way to learn their bed. So that was that was sharp of him. He he learned uh, necessity is the mother of invention. I mean, right. kind of learned by necessity there at school. Yeah, yeah. He had a great hunt that day that he found the bed. He actually saw like a one fifty pushing a doe around, and he didn't even know that the giant was there. You know, he just saw a big sign, which could have been made by that one fifty potentially. Cause that's a that's a good deer as well, obviously. Um, but he found that exit trail, and he was like, "Well, I'm going to set up on this exit trail because whatever deer is dominant in this area is going to bed there." You know, because it's there were does kind of like, you know, adjacent to where that, where that bed was at. And just all that action was right around there. Um, they just killed a, killed a hammer. It was a freaking awesome hunt. We had a great time out there and we saw great bucks, but it was different, you know, for, for both of us. Cause we'd never hunted a plain state before. And so that was, you know, like I was saying, going back to trying to always learn something new. I try to, you know, pick something up every year that I do, you know, that I can add to my bag of tricks. And this year it was, going to a place where I'd have to pretty much exclusively hunt from the ground. Um, you know, we were in like West central Kansas. So we were, you know, kind of out further toward the plains and, um, knowing that I was going to have to probably hunt from the ground, like 95% and, you know, really have never done that spot and stock style and just force myself to try to figure it out. And I think, I feel like that's one of the best ways to sharpen yourself as a hunter is just put yourself in unknown situations and try to try to figure them out. I mean, do you, do you kind of feel the same way that traveling over the years and hunting a, a bunch of different terrain and topography and different places and stuff like that? Do you feel like that has even sharpened you for when you're hunting at home just because you're so well-versed in any style you might need to deploy regardless of what state you might be in? Yeah. Well, first of all, stay out of Western Kansas. Okay. So don't advertise that. <laughs> okay. Copy that. <laughs> Roger. <laughs> joke. I like the silence for a minute. You're like, what? Uh, yeah. Um, that's great that you guys did that too. I love, I love every part of Kansas. Eastern Kansas is amazing. Central, Western, it's all great. Nebraska is great. Eastern Colorado is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, what you said there, uh, putting yourself in a bad situation. I mean, that's, that's it. That's mm-hmm. a ticket to life. It doesn't yeah. matter. doesn't matter what you are. Um, once you continually get thrown in shitty situations and you learn to recover and excel in them, you're good at shit. Right. Then when you get put in easy situations, it's like, it's nothing. Right. So and that's why you see, you know, kids that come from rough families grow up to be self-made millionaires that are brilliant, but their kids are spoiled brats because right. their parents gave them everything. So <laughs> right. it's the same with hunting. I mean, when you're, you know, when, when you, there's a couple of guys around here that, which are great guys and they kill big deer. I'm, I'm, it's, it's very cool that they, um, they're definitely managing deer, but I mean, when you're, there's a little different etiquette when you, when you own 2,800 acres of private, um, yeah. And you're killing a 150. I mean, that's awesome. Don't get mm-hmm. me wrong, but it's, it's a lot more impressive when you, 
<laughs> yeah. When, you know, when, when you have nothing and you're working your ass off, but that's, that's being put in a shitty situation and figuring out how to kill big stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, definitely, uh, hunting out of state. I, I would say I was just a, um, before I started hunting out of state, I was just a killer. Mm-hmm. That's it. Nothing. Um, I wasn't a great hunter. I was just a really good at killing shit. Um, and that came from necessity, you know, really it came from needing, we genuinely needed meat. So that was, um, that was a big plus for me and, and really growing up kind of alone and having a lot of freedom. Um, you know, woodchucks, we, we had horses, so every woodchuck needed to be killed and every farmer just loved me because I would, every woodchuck got killed. Like I'm amazed there is a woodchuck in the state of New York. We just killed the shit out of them. Nice. And when I was a kid, the price of coon pelts were, were pretty strong. So I killed the shit out of a coon. Um, so just learning how to be a, a, a killer is extremely important, but that's all I was until mm-hmm. I really, um, you know, you, I started tagging out pretty like real fast in my home state. And I just, I grew to just love hunting and, and almost needed it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's when I started going out of state. And that's when you get, I got thrown in this whirlwind, like, holy fuck, like, I have no idea what I'm doing in, you know, Ohio. Actually, the first out of state, believe it or not, first, well, no, I did go to Ohio. Um, but the first, one of the first out of state hunts I ever went on I, was Montana. I always dreamt of hunting elk. And uh, I, bought, I, don't know, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. It was so long ago. The tag was under $500. Oh, wow. I think it was 448 Yeah, for a, that was a combination. Wow. I could be wrong on that. Maybe it was 648 for the combination. I don't know. It, it was cheap. And, um, but I mean, all of a sudden I was in elk country and it's like, I have no, it was my first time in the mountains. I was mm-hmm. just a kid. I had no idea, but I just remember I, I wrote on a piece of tape, uh, and stuck it on my dash refuse failure. Mm-hmm. Um, because that was my, I just remember thinking like, fuck, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. And I hunted for six days before I saw an elk. Like I saw a marsh and I saw a spike and I was like, uh, I still didn't know anything, but it's like, I'm getting close. Like I'm learning this. I'm, I'm right. figuring this out. I pretty much hunted them like whitetails, but, mm-hmm. uh, but that was a learning curve. And, uh, you know, I kind of learned to learn to hunt the mountains that year. And then I started hunting Ohio and started hunting, uh, Illinois and Kansas and Arizona. And absolutely, you know, you start learning what you can get away with in some States that you can't get away with in others. And, you know, you start learning the sweet spots. Um, and, and it's just like, it's like any other thing, putting yourself in a bad situation is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you gotta, that's how you learn to, you know, fight or flight. And I think you learn a lot. You learn how to swim when you get your ass thrown in the, in the deep end. Yeah. Yeah, for and, sure. And yeah. That, that's what, that's what you gotta do, but you gotta be willing to learn. And a lot of people aren't willing to learn. You gotta be willing to, to be humble and absorb what's going on around you and make it work. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's the one thing it's, um, you know, putting yourself, like we said earlier in, in tough situations, you know, going, since I know we both like wrestling that analogy of you always learn more from the losses than you did your wins, right? Like those losses 100%. were, you know, were exposing a weakness, you know, that maybe you were covering up with something else, you know, and maybe you were never going to be great at that one thing. Right. But you had to figure out how to compensate for it. Right. So, you know, for example, like some guys may not be great shots, but they're really great at kind of reading the woods and, and they can pick the right tree and they never take longer than a 10 yard shot. You know what I mean? Like that's how they compensate for it. Right. And it only takes them screwing one up once at a longer distance that they aren't capable of 
to figure out like, Hey, I gotta, I gotta be closer or whatever the case is. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's exactly right. You gotta, that's actually really good. I, I, I don't consider myself, I'm actually not really a good shot. Um, I'm a good shot. I I guess I should say I'm a good shot. Right. I've got friends that are fucking, I mean, world-class spot shooters. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to killing a, a big buck, I'm not worried about it. Like I'm, I'm definitely not going to probably hit the hair I'm aiming for, but I'm putting it in the pocket. Right. Um, yeah. But my buddies will hit the hair <laughs> if, they can, if they can keep their nerves under control. Right. You know what I mean? And, yeah. And there's a real big advantage to you. You got to, a lot of guys get too worked up over just being a perfect, perfect shooter. I think you need to be a great shooter. I think you need to shoot a lot. Um, but you need to be a murderer and just get the, get the job done. And, and just like you said, you got to figure out your strong points and your weak points. And for me, my strong point is just getting shit killed. My weak point. have the time to scout like I used to, and I don't have the time to shoot like I used to. So I really got to rely on, um, just my ability, my, I know I can shoot. I'm not worried about it. I know when something comes up, or not on your podcast, but that's the, that's the mentality I try and have. Like, right. even though I haven't shot 3000 arrows this year, you're done, buddy. Right. Um, and, yeah. and that's the, that's the kind of what you got to keep for a, for a mentality. And you're right. You got to train your weak points, but yeah, there's only so much hours in the day that guys can train that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's always, you know, to me, if you're training your weaknesses, you know, overly training your weaknesses, you, you may never be great at that one thing, but would you be better off, you know, being something that you're good at that you have an aptitude for being great at that one thing? You know what I mean? It'd be, for example, like in your business, if you have a guy that's a really good welder, but he's not a great, I'm just going to say like a, a chassis builder, like you're probably better off allowing him to be great at welding and not so much focusing on building chassis. You know what I mean? Cause you're just yeah, not going to get the, I'm not going to get the quality that's out of exactly it. Right? Right. You know what I mean? It's like yeah, put him no, in a position exactly to be right. successful. That's uh, no, that's right. Oh, I, I can't even have that guy. I mean, and I think in life that guy struggles anyways. And right. There's guys that are like, I actually had a guy work for me that was a phenomenal TIG welder. His TIG welding was better than mine. It was really, it was good, but he sat in a booth for years and just, just did brackets that were pre-made. So when mm -hmm. he got it, everything was tack welded. He just did beautiful welds, but he couldn't do anything else. And it was right. hell. Right. Um, but the guy that works for me now, I think he's been with me like eight years. He's just good at everything. There's mm -hmm. nothing. And even if it's something that he's never done, he's got the confidence to be like, yeah, yeah, I'll figure it out. It's fine. Like he's not worried. He's, he's like me. He just, which is a uh, hard, you know, it's hard to find a guy that just doesn't care. Like, I don't care. Like, right. That's his attitude. I don't care. I'll figure it out. Yeah. yeah, I'll do it. Like he's nothing. He's not bothered by anything. Will he be a master? Will he be the best pig weld on that certain one? Not the first time, but if you tell him it has to be perfect, he'll he'll practice for three hours and then do, lay a perfect bead on it. Right. Um, and and that's kind of how you have to be, in in my opinion, if you're going to be a real diverse hunter, if you're going to travel in different states um, and hunt different species, um, you you got to have a deep bag of tricks. If you're going to hunt your family's, you know, fourteen hundred acre farm or or even three hundred acre farm, 
you don't really need a deep bag of tricks. You just have to have common sense and not screw up what you have. And right. You're going to kill big bucks. I right. Mean, really? So I'm, I'm curious, man, like, you know, we've been talking about switching styles and, you know, matching the, the style of, of, of how you're hunting for the place that you're, for the place that you're hunting and stuff like that. And, you know, I think when the terrain is drastically different from one place to the next. So for example, you know, me living in Pennsylvania and then going to hunt in Kansas, right? That's a pretty obvious, like, Hey, I'm gonna have to change my, my approach and my style and maybe some of my strategies up because where I'm going is vastly different from where I, where I hunt at home. Right. Um, so I think whenever it's, it's, it's so much different, it becomes easy to understand like, Hey, I got to do something a little bit different. Right. But what about examples where, you're hunting places that you're familiar with, for example, like New York or for me, Pennsylvania, that you say you hunt 95% of the time out of a tree. How do you know when that piece, you know, that you're familiar with, that you hunt out of a tree almost all the time, for example, you know, or that a specific deer needs to be hunted differently to kill him and that you're switching styles like in an area that wouldn't necessarily wouldn't suggest like the terrain wouldn't suggest that you switch, but it's the behavior or the circumstance. Like when do you know that like, Hey, I got to change something because what I'm thinking of isn't going to work. Yeah. Well, that's a great question. You, you almost truthfully kind of answered it yourself. Um, when you know that the, the, um, when you know that things are di- when, just for instance, I guess um, in my home state of New York, it's, it's really, I love it. I guess, the style because it's what I grew up with, but I feel like it's the easiest. It's big agriculture with nice chunks of uh, hardwoods, timber, mm. um, a lot like Ohio, um, central Ohio, even southern Ohio. Southern Ohio gets a lot bigger timber, but it's agriculture. Um, it's it's really the layout. The first time I hunted Ohio, it was like going home, except the deer were literally 40 inches, 50 inches bigger. It was amazing. Um, the difference that I found in Ohio in the beginning, when I started hunting it in the late nineties, early two thousands was, um, the hunters were different. The people were different. The respect was different. Um, it was a lot, uh, where I was hunting was a lot more, um, there was a lot less hunters. I, I think, I think, and people respected other, the neighbor's boundaries and people didn't try and screw each other over. I, I think this was early on. Um, I think that's unfortunately happening now. Um, you could hunt, you could get permission about anywhere back in the day. Um, but I, I remember having like almost being shocked. Like this, this is too good to be true. Like this couldn't, there's no way nobody's hunting here. Like I remember getting permission on this one guy's, this guy's name was Gary. He gave me permission. We kind of hit it off. And he's like, I don't let anybody hunt. He's like, nobody will be in there. You'll have it to yourself. And I was kind of like, yeah, bullshit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is this ground. No way nobody's in there. And I kind of gently attacked it from the downwind side. And the first, and I didn't have, I wasn't married, didn't have kids. I glassed it from a distance and didn't see much. And then I kind of got in there a little deeper. And then was... there's no, there's no, there's no tree stands. Um, it was a Mecca shot a great deer. <laughs> mm-hmm. it, it was completely different. And I would say that, that, that would be, a, um, you're, you were kind of asking like when you hit. I mean, something to that effect. I mean, 
I guess it's just common sense. I, I guess you judge, you're going to know almost right away. Um, things are different and every state is different. I, I would almost say even in my home state, different counties okay. are different. Um, Genesee County, Livingston County, Wyoming County, Monroe County, Chautauqua County. Um, those are c- counties that I've hunted and it, it can almost change within the county. Um, but it, I, I think it's a, I think it's a, I guess I would refer to what Andy May said one time. It's a woodsman's, you, you almost pick up on it. And if you spend a brain and almost it's an intuition, like, yeah, this is, this is good. Or this, this guy has never, nobody asked this guy permission to hunt or yeah, everybody's banging on everybody's door around here. This is going to be a high pressured place. Right. Um, or even, you know, even, um, um, even when you get on the ground, you can tell by the way the deer move. I mean, if it's, if it's a half an hour before, you know, I mean, if the yearlings aren't moving until a half hour before sunset, we got, we got a problem. Like this is high pressure and you kind of have to really switch your tactics and observe everything from a, a long ways away and, and, and make a, make a, an aggressive kill when you can. Um, if you get to a place where you're literally glassing deer at one o'clock in the afternoon in an alfalfa field on the side of the road, <laughs> then game on, you, you've got to <laughs> you game on. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's a, it's a observe and, and react thing. I don't think any of us, I mean, I'm sure a lot of guys like to say they figure it out immediately, but for me, even, I mean, it really takes me some time to figure a, a new place out. And, um, even with my, with my kids now, all my hunting spots, we get, there's so much pressure everywhere. And there's so many, there's just so many people that are just everywhere. Um, it's, I'm, I'm even looking for new places to hunt to try and expose my kids to better opportunities because we're, we're just burning up our own. Right. You, know, you can only have so many decent spots, but uh, even for me, it's a, it's a learning curve all over again and I'm learning new areas and different spots. And uh, you know, it, it takes, it takes a couple of years. I hate to say it, but it, it, it really does. It takes yeah. a couple of years to figure out, in my opinion, it takes a couple of years to figure out a new state. You can definitely get one killed, yeah. but to figure out a new state and go there. And um, I even think, time can change it like i haven't hunted kansas in two or three years now and i've i haven't been there but boy i know it really really good where i hunt and uh i feel like i feel like it's probably changed you know the walk-in changes um the permission changes the pressure changes um so you kind of got to keep your finger on the pulse of all that shit all the time if you really want a high-end success right and i think what you said there where sometimes it can take two to three years I think that that's, you know, a part that a lot of people overlook um, and think they need to just, it needs to happen the first year. It's, you almost need to make a long-term plan. Like you gotta be, you gotta have that, you gotta have patience, you know, you gotta kind of let the woods tell you what's going to happen. Just like me headed to this, this spot that I'm going to hunt here in late season. It's, I went into it with my eyes wide open, knowing full well that it's probably going to be a two to two to three year plan of attack of you know, and, and I had goals for each year, what I wanted to learn each year. And then I felt like by year three, I should have, a, I should know enough to have put myself in a good position, to have a good opportunity. That was kind of the, that was kind of the plan. And I think a lot of people lose sight of that where they want that instant gratification. And, uh, 
you know, and, and, and hunting just isn't, isn't, isn't necessarily always that, <laughs> you know, I think that's, I think you're really on point with, with that time frame. That's a great, if a, if a, if a guy can plan a hunt and go hunt it and have a good experience and see a big buck. And, and if you can shoot for getting a, uh, a, whatever your target buck is, whatever, whatever your goal is. And it's got, it's gotta be a good representative buck. Uh, for that state mm-hmm. i always quote eddie claypool he always used that i don't know if you know you know eddie yeah, claypool yeah. i'm sure right? eddie's a great good representative buck for that state uh with his southwestern oklahoma draw <laughs> yeah but uh three years is very admirable i think it's, i think it's um especially if you're a dad yeah if you're a husband and a dad, if you can get something killed in three years, by God, you're, you're doing something. Right. Um, if you are a 22 year old, I'm going to burn the world down. Then yeah, you should definitely kill a good deer. Right. Yeah. I'm on the end of a, I'm on the end of the, uh, a big deer. Yeah. I'm yeah. On... I, I have to win. Like I have, I am not leaving. I, you know, Montana, that first, year I ever hunted Montana and I prided myself on that. I, you know, I killed a bull. Well, yeah, I killed it on my 31st day there. I mean, that's 31 days of hunting elk. So it's really not that great of an accomplishment. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I did pass up. I I passed up a lot of, I think I passed up 14 bulls that year. I don't even know how old I was. I was in my really early twenties. I was sleeping in the back of a Toyota pickup truck with 270,000 miles on it. Nice. I mean, you have nothing to lose. It's, yeah. it's not that great of an, I mean, it was a great accomplishment, but it's, it's, that was, that was just hard work paying right. off. Yeah. Um, you know, as I got more mature, I learned the ground, I learned the elk and it was a lot more. Um, I think it's a lot bigger notch in my belt that I can go there on a, you know, three or four days and get one killed. And, you know, two years ago, the first two or three days because I really knew the ground well. So that's a lot bigger notch in our belt than <laughs> killing right. one on 31 days. Right. Right. But uh, I think your goal of going and learning and understanding and then being okay with eating tag soup is fine. Knowing how many antlers we have. However, I have a drawer. I have this little nightstand and it is full of unpunched tags, like full of them. I don't even know how many unpunched tags I have. So anybody that's got a house full of big antlers, um, they've got battle scars and they've got a, a pocket full of untagged. I should put all those out. So everybody that's like, wow, this is amazing. Can also see all my failure <laughs> right. because there's a lot of failure. That's awesome. Yeah. There's a lot of failure you, uh, behind that shit. You just gave me a really good idea because I'm redoing my basement and uh, I have a bar in the basement. I haven't figured out what I was going to do with the bar top yet. I haven't done anything with the bar top. So I was like, I don't know what I want to do with it. But I think now I think the plan is to do some type of like uh, epoxy finish on the top with all my unfilled tags underneath of it. Yeah, that would be a lot of guys would get it. Oh, yeah. I would get it. If I walked in your place and saw that, I'd just smile that yeah, I got I got you here, Bill. Just be careful if you would if you uh laminate them though, some of them will turn black. I mean, obviously you know uh, that. Some yeah. of them the, the chemicals will hurt them, but uh, yeah. yeah, I like where you're going with that. I think that's a pretty uh I think that's a pretty cool thing to do. And if nice. you need any extra tags, I can mail you tons of them. I got shit tons of good tags that didn't get filled. 
Awesome. Awesome. Well, man, I've kept you here about an hour. I want to be, uh, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, and, uh, appreciate you spending some time with me, dude. I'd love to do this again. Cause I got a bunch of other questions I want to ask you just about a, a bunch of random things about different times of the year and stuff like that. Um, but I know it's around the holidays. I'm sure you've got work to kind of jump into tomorrow and maybe some hunting with the kids. So I want to make sure you have a, a good night's rest to do all that. But, uh, for those that are out there listening, if there's, uh, folks that want to kind of follow along with what you got going on or check out the hot rods or follow along with what you got going on for hunting, where can they uh, find out more about you and follow? Oh yeah. Thanks. Well, um, I'm, I'm <laughs> kind of under the radar, but yeah, I'm on Facebook, um, just under Jesse Coots and, um, my shop, my shop name is the old soul hot rod shop. So, uh, and I'm on Instagram, but I don't really, I'm probably not that most interesting guy to follow. I've, I've really, um, I've gotten out of posting. I don't post anything about my hunting anymore because this sounds bad, but I found that so, uh, so many people will start hunting you mm-hmm. and start hunting your spots. And you'd be amazed at how many people I have found from my hometown in Montana, in Kansas, in Ohio. So I just kind of stopped bragging on, on, yeah. uh, social media so you probably won't i'm probably not a very lucrative guy to follow i'm not very exciting i don't post anything i just try and kill big shit and uh kind of my tight circle sees it and that's about it nice (laughs) i i I even kind of sacrificed i used to be sponsored by sitka they used to yell at me because i never posted anything but i just (laughs) kind of try and fly under the radar i don't i i get enough high fives from the from my killing circle so that's right nobody will probably want to follow me uh, (laughs) i appreciate that i appreciate the plug yeah you bet man well uh have a good uh have a good new year man uh stay uh stay healthy and safe uh you you and your family and uh i look forward to catch up with you again soon man yeah likewise clint thanks for the conversation buddy Good luck. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. And hell, while you're at it, head over to YouTube and give us a sub there too. I'd be super appreciative if you'd be able to do those two things for me. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Spartan Forge, Exodus Outdoor Gear, and Skull Brew Coffee Company. And until next time, we'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do hard shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.